for those of you who are with us last week, we were talking about Daniel chapter 2, and we talked about uh, a little bit about Daniel uh, and Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So today I want to talk a little bit about uh, Daniel chapter 3, the fiery furnace. And so we're talking about the theme of the whole book of Daniel is faithfulness in exile, how to be faithful in a land that is sort of um, the opposite of what is going on in what God, how God calls me to be, okay? So if you remember, the book of Daniel is primarily focused on four people. It's talking about Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it's talking about, like, how are they interacting with the people? Because you know that they were in Jerusalem, and when Jerusalem got invaded, they had to go to Babylon, and they were taken to Babylon, okay? And so they were living in Babylon, working in Babylon, uh, praying in Babylon. Their whole lives were there in Babylon. So. This week in chapter 3, uh, it's another one of those stories of their struggle. And it's actually one of the more or most uh, well-known uh, stories. It's the story of the three youth in the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Uh, many of you, if I, if I can venture a guess, uh, know the story from either one of two places. Either you know the story because you hear the story in Midnight Praises and you know about the three youth, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or you know the story because you watched Veggie Tales. Or maybe your kids watch Veggie Tales. Okay, so those are maybe the two places that you heard the three U's: Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, this is one of those stories where, um, so unfortunately, like I mean, that's a good thing that we learn those stories. But the problem sometimes is if I learn the story as a kid a certain way, I never am able to graduate beyond a, 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 a more mature understanding of the story. You know, like we look at this story and say, okay, this is a good religious story with a, a moral of like, okay, obey God no matter what, even in the face of danger and all this kind of stuff and that's a nice message it's a beautiful message and a good message for especially for children that's fine but to think that somehow this wraps up the entire story is is sort of like a, it's a little bit of a tragedy because it's much deeper than that the issue that or the focus of the story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are things that are actually really uh, uncomfortable because the story focuses on two things that really we're not supposed to talk about in like mixed company of people we don't know very well or whatever. And it's about politics and religion. Okay, the, the chapter three of Daniel is about politics and religion and how they intersect and what it means uh, to talk about, right? So if you're at like dinner with your friends or if you're in line at the store or anything like that, you know you're not supposed to talk about politics and religion because you know it can be controversial. So since uh, the talking vegetables might have hijacked the story for us, I want to really like try to look at the story again in another way and so that we can get an image and see that this story has a much uh, maybe de deeper meaning. Uh, I wanted to show you a picture of two people. One person maybe for sure you'll recognize, and then another person, only if you're really a history buff, you're gonna recognize them, okay? The person on the left, everybody knows who's the person on the left, right? It's Hitler. The person on the left is Adolf Hitler. Okay, and everybody knows Adolf Hitler is the, the, the head of the Nazi, Nazi Germany, and all the kind of really bad things that they did, including the Holocaust uh, during Nazi Germany. Okay, the guy on the right, the guy on the right, his name, I'm sure I'm going to butcher his name, but his name is Balder von Schirach. Okay, Balder von Schirach, he was actually uh, lived in Germany during the time of Nazi Germany. And he was um, the person who created this group called the Hitler Youth. Okay, so this group called the Hitler Youth was sort of these people that would indoctrinate children. They would have, it's kind of like Cub Scouts 
but for Nazi Germany, okay? So they had like uh, people who would, um, like they would do projects with them or whatever, but it would all centered around the country and following Hitler and his ideology and all this kind of stuff. And this is the guy who was in charge of it, uh, Boulder von Chirac, okay? And he was like, if you could, if you asked Hitler who would be the ideal German youth, this was the guy. He started when he was 18, and within eight years, actually he became uh, head of this group, the Hitler Youth, and he was sort of, he was actually in the cabinet of Adolf Hitler, and became very uh, a close personal uh, counselor of Adolf Hitler. And actually he had, um, during, like when the Hitler Youth was, the Hitler Youth came up much before World War II, and much before the Holocaust and all the bad things that were happening, right? It was just sort of like a Cub Scouts kind of a thing, there was nothing really, overtly bad about it that anybody would recognize, okay? And so people uh, in the London Times, the newspaper, they interviewed uh, Boulder von Schirach, and this is what he says about the Hitler Youth and about Germany and about his country. He says, one cannot be a good German and at the same time deny God, but an arousal of faith in the eternal German is at the same time an arousal of faith in the eternal God. If we act as true Germans, we act according to the laws of God. Whoever serves Adolf Hitler serves Germany, and whoever serves Germany serves God. Okay, this is what he said. And I'm sure you look at this, knowing what you know now about World War II, and you think to yourself, this guy is nuts. This guy is crazy. But this is what he thought, and this is what he taught, and this is what he firmly believed, okay? That to, to serve God is to serve Adolf, is to serve Germany, and to serve Germany is to serve Adolf Hitler. So we're doing the right thing by following him, um, and we sort of, we see this and we cringe, right? Because, okay, we know where these ideas led. It led to, you know, actually within 10 years of him saying these words, millions and millions and millions of people died. Death on a scale that like is not, was never repeated in, in, in human history. That's why we cringe when we see something like this. And this is proof for us that of, of the horrifying things that sort of happen uh, when we have one particular tribe or one particular nation, their values, their culture, their state religion, their ideologies are elevated above everyone and elevated up to heaven, stamped with the authority of God. See how he says, whoever serves Germany serves God, okay? This is the kind of idolatry of national identity, okay? It's the idolatry of national identity. And that leads to horror and to evil in the world, okay? And if you believe it or not, this is what exactly Daniel chapter 3 is about. This is exactly what Daniel chapter 3 is about. Daniel chapter 3 is sort of an expose about human idolatry of their own national identity. You know, like I, we kind of mentioned this last week, human beings, we naturally begin to collect together and then we form communities and we combine resources and seek safety and refuge in one another and all this kind of stuff. But then sometimes certain nations elevate their way of life and stamp it with a sort of divine authority. And they go on and say, everybody else needs to recognize this. Nazi Germany, of course, was a horrifying uh, people or horrifying government or horrifying way of life. But it wasn't the first people, group of people to ever do this, and unfortunately not the last people, group of people to ever do this. But this is what the story of Daniel chapter three is about, and it raises the question, when God's people find themselves living in a nation or a kingdom, going down this path, what are they supposed to do? And let's say that that nation, or that particular nation that God's people is living in, 
doesn't quite go down this path, but it goes down idolizing national identity in some other way. What are God's people supposed to do? Okay, this is Daniel chapter 3. So we can see, we can dive in. If anybody has their Bibles on their phones and things, you can read along with me. I'm going to read uh, from Daniel chapter 3. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Okay, so the events begin with, king is making a huge statue of what? What is the king making a huge, a huge statue of? It says, the king made an image of gold. The Bible actually doesn't say what the image is. We don't know what the image is. And honestly, I think this is intentional. First of all, in the ancient world, this is not a crazy or unknown thing to build huge images. Um, lots of kingdoms have uh, big images. Of course, Egypt, we have the pyramids. Uh, lots of ancient kingdoms have, have gigantic statues of gods or whatever. Um, one of the seven wonders of the world, this is the picture that, uh, that I put up on here, is the Colossus of Rhodes. And it was a, there's a city called Rhodes, it's close to modern day Turkey in Greece. And uh, they had this huge image of uh, the, the sun god Helios sitting right on the harbor. So like when you go into the harbor, this is the first thing you would see. Okay, So it's not really like an uncommon thing for ancient uh, kingdoms to do stuff like this. But it's a little bit conspicuous and strange that the Bible doesn't tell us what the image is. For readers of the book of Daniel, the reason I would argue that they, 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 he didn't include what the image is goes back to maybe a little bit about what we talked about yesterday or last week when we talked about chapter 2. If you remember chapter 2, what was chapter 2 about? Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And what was the dream about? What did he have a dream of? An image. An image of what? An image of a person who was gold and then silver and then iron and then iron mixed with clay and then there was a rock and all this kind of stuff. A whole train of kingdoms and Nebuchadnezzar is the gold head of that kingdom. So you know maybe he was inspired by this dream to make an image um, for himself. So we don't know but what the image is but the idea that Daniel in this book is trying to convey to, to people who are reading it is that it's the embodiment of the Babylonian Empire of his gods. It's of the whole deal merged into, so what, what I'm basically trying to say, it doesn't matter what the image was. It doesn't matter whether it, was, whether it was an image of the king or an image of the gods. The whole point is actually the whole point of the book of Daniel. Human kingdoms and their exaltation of their own power. Human kingdoms and their exaltation of their own power. This is what the book of Daniel is trying to talk about. This is the topics that the book of Daniel is trying to talk about. So if you think about it, okay, ancient peoples, they like to make images of themselves or of important things to embody their, their culture or whatever. Um, but we've, thank God, you know, we've moved past that in the modern world. We don't do that anymore, right? It's not something that is really relevant to us. So it maybe is not that important. We don't have maybe um, national, big, huge national monuments of stuff like this. Or maybe we do. Right? So the Statue of Liberty, I'm not saying the Statue of Liberty is a good thing or a bad thing, but the Statue of Liberty is an embodiment of what? Freedom. What else? Embodiment of what? Hmm? Immigration. Okay, embodiment of, okay, what if it, it's an embodiment of what more generally? American ideology. It's, a, it's an embodiment of this is what America stands for. Right? That's what the Statue of Liberty is for. That's why if you ever go to visit the Statue of Liberty, it says, give me your tired, your hungry, your poor. So because one of the national values of American identity is welcoming those from other countries because it's a land of immigration. 
So maybe we don't have national ceremonies where we, the president forces us to bow down to the Statue of Liberty, but we do still have this concept of, you know, there are images and statues that sort of embody uh, what are the, the, the national values. So that's where this, this is where the story is, is going. So let's see where the rest of the story says. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials. Hey, by the way, when you read this, when you're reading this and you see that Daniel is naming all of these people over and over and over and over again. Sometimes you read it and you say, okay, why didn't he just say everybody? Why didn't he say everybody's coming? What's the point? What's the author of Daniel trying to do? What's the author of the book of Daniel trying to do? Why does he do that? Any ideas? Why does, the, why does Daniel do that? Yeah. Well, there's specific people. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. He's trying to grab the attention of the readers and he's trying to say everybody, every government official is involved. Okay? That's what he's trying to say. So he says the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials, the provinces gathered together to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, all peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, the psaltery, the symphony, with all kinds of music. Again with the music. What is Daniel, the author of Daniel, trying to say? When you hear all kinds of music... What am I going to do? When you hear all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And then he continues. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and the symphony, with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Okay? So now, the, so now Daniel has set the scene. And we have not seen any of the major characters of this chapter yet. He's just setting the scene. Babylon is being presented to the readers and to us as this iconic, almost kind of like archetypal representation of the most powerful empire at the time in the ancient world. And it's exalting its power, its own place above God. And it's Nebuchadnezzar, it's, the, it's, the, it's their gods, it's their military, it's their way of life, their culture. And all of the world is being asked to do what? Give allegiance, to declare allegiance to these statues. So, by the way, it's not just about like having people go and sing praises in front of this image. What is he really trying to say? What is the king trying to do? He's trying to do something more important than that. He's trying to say, Babylon defines reality. Babylon defines reality. Babylon gets to define what's right and wrong. Babylon gets to define what success and failure is. Babylon is God. Babylon is God. All of that is symbolized in here in the image. So it's going to take a whole bunch of time that I, I don't want to take too much time to go into this, but I just remind, I remind everybody if, we, if you were here last week, the fact that human kingdoms being represented by an image is a very clear illusion. Daniel is giving us little clues to remind us of another biblical passage that talks about human beings ruling as an image. If you're here last week, what page of the Bible should I be thinking about? Or what book in the Bible should I be thinking about?
Genesis. Genesis. Page one of the Bible sets the stage for the whole story of humans. And the first description in the Bible of humans is what? That they are existing as what? The image of God. They're existing as the image of God. So God created humanity in his own image for what purpose? To rule, to have dominion over the earth, over the world. So he created them that might have uh, image. And actually, I, I don't think I mentioned this last week, but he says like in Genesis, God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And the Hebrew word for image is this word tselem. Tselem, okay? This is the Hebrew word for image. This is also happens to be the Hebrew word for idol. So in the, in the Ten Commandments, you have no idol, you not create idols. The Hebrew word also is tselem. Okay, it's the same word. And Israel was called to never make an image of God. Why? Why was Israel told not to make an image of God? There's actually two main reasons. One reason is to do so would take some sort of image available within creation, a created thing, and treat it as if it's the creator. So it blurs the distinction between the creator and the created. Reducing God to something less than he actually or truly is. But there's another main reason based on this story in Genesis that God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Why we shouldn't create images of God? Why else should we not create images of God? Who can, who can think? Okay, so one reason, of course, we don't want to make something that's created to be the creator. Why else would we not be making an image of God? Looking at this verse, God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. We are already. God already created his images. We, you are an image of God. The person standing next to you is an image of God. There's no need to create an image of God because the image of God, you are created in his image. Okay? And how do human beings, like we talked about last week, show that they are in God's image? Or what do they do? They have dominion. They rule over the earth. And we talked about last week that how humans corrupted that because the way they had rule and dominion over the world was not in the way that God is, was intending. And so they, they, they disobeyed and, and, and went against what God wanted. And there was this sort of distortion of the fabric of the universe. And all of a sudden you have humans now in the book of Daniel worshiping this image in the shape of a human. But what does the image represent? The image represents human rule. It represents humans creating a nation, an empire, a way of life, a culture, and then treating it as God. This is the problem. This is the danger. And human history has shown that it's extremely dangerous when human beings mistake the life that they have that's been created with God himself. So all of a sudden, worshiping the image is not a way of being faithful to the Creator. It's the way of ousting and usurping the Creator, saying there is something else, there is more than God. There's something more important than God. So we'll continue. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. Do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. You see what the people did right there? 
Pay attention. They connected three things. Maybe I read it fast so you wouldn't pick up. They said to, to the king, they don't honor you. They don't serve your gods. And they don't worship the image, which is a representation of their kingdom and their empire. So the imperial power is embodied in the king. And that king exists with authority and in partnership of the gods. And all of that is embodied and carried forward by the image which represents their kingdom. So now the, the people who were sort of tattling on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying, this is against your personal honor. It's against our national story and identity. It's against our civic religion. All of this is merged together and represented by the fact that these three are not participating. Now they are a threat. Now they are a threat because they don't conform to this exaltation of the national gods and their national power. He says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to, sh to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the harp, the lyre, and psaltery, and symphony, with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? What is King Nebuchadnezzar saying? We can see King Nebuchadnezzar is intoxicated by his own power. With his own imperial role in his kingdom. He equates himself to God, right? He says... And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? I'm God to you. That's what King Nebuchadnezzar is saying. I'm God to you. There's no God who can rescue you. Because Babylon is God. And I'm God. And I hold your life in my hands. So what did the three youths say? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. You can imagine that this is probably in the history of the earth the most polite rebellion you have ever seen, right? You're expecting, you know, the, the three youth to say, you're a blasphemer, how dare you? This is against uh, the commandments. No, they didn't do any of that. They just say, you know what? First of all, we're not going to have a theological debate whether you are God or not, or whether I should uh, bow down in front of this or not. He's like, we don't believe you're God. We don't believe that Babylon is God. We don't believe that your gods represent the one true God, so we're not going to have that debate at all. We don't need to defend ourselves. If you want to kill us, that's fine. Our God will deliver us. Our God might deliver us from the furnace and will continue living on, but he may not do that. Either way, Nebuchadnezzar, you're not God, and we're not interested in having this debate. You can imagine how infuriating this is to the king, because they're like the nicest people you ever met, and they're saying the nicest, you know, they're saying things in a, in a, in a nice way, but they're rebelling. And now he has to kill them. He feels like he has to kill them. We're going to come back to this in just a second, but pay attention to the nature of their resistance. They're very polite, 
completely peaceful, but also full of conviction and trust. Whether their God delivers them or not is not the issue, okay? He's like, we just fundamentally disagree with who you think you are and what you think Babylon is. So look at this, then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. His attitude changed towards them, like yours probably would too. So, but if you look at your translation in the Bible, it depends what Bible you have. In the New King James, it says that the expression on his face changed. There's a word play that's happening in Hebrew that is not there in the English, that is, that is really super interesting. The king of Babylon, so he said that again, Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury and the expression of his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Actually, the word that his expression of his face changed in Hebrew is tselem, the same word, tselem. He says literally, the tselem of his face changed. So the king of Babylon creates a, a tselem, right, an image that embodies him and his kingdom and his power and his authority, but he can't control these three men who won't give their devotion and allegiance to it. So the king who can make the whole world bow down to his tselem now cannot control his own tselem, cannot control his own face. So if you're reading this 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago in Hebrew, you should laugh. It's like a joke. He's trying to, like the, 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 the book of Daniel, the author, is trying to say, look, this guy thinks he can control everything. He cannot even control his face in front, in standing in front of these three youths. Okay, so then he continues. He says, he spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these three men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments and were cast in the midst of the firing furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the fire exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound in the midst of the fiery furnace. The, uh, the, Daniel is trying to show us how the haste, how quickly they put him into the fire. Like they didn't put him into jail. They didn't wait to undress them. They just threw them into the fire as is. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace was so hot that it killed the soldiers who took up the three youth. The author, again, Daniel is trying to say another message. Pay attention. I want part of like the understanding of these like these series is to know that the Bible is trying to give a much deeper message than maybe can we can see on the surface. Daniel is trying to give a portrait of Babylon. You have this king. He's full of himself. And what happens when a leader or in a nation exalts itself to divine status? First of all, he has delusions of grandeur that he can control everybody to do everything that they want. Second of all, we see something very important. Human life becomes expendable. When a nation exalts and defines or defies its own power and authority. So how do I know when a nation has idolized its own power and authority? Human life becomes expendable. Human life becomes expendable. And so the king will throw away human lives, the soldiers, for the sake of his own, how he looks, his pride, his ego. Those soldiers, they don't have, in the, their story is not told, but they have families, they have friends, they have lives, but their lives were to the, to the king meaningless, nothing. 
Human life becomes of less worth when nations start to idolize themselves. So then in the, in the chapter it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to the counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. When he says the Son of God, if you put this in the mouth of a non-Israelite person who is a pagan, he means to say that the fourth person looks like a divine being. It looks like a divine being. The fourth person looks like a divine being. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Remember the words of the three youth. If our God delivers us from your hand, or if our God does not, you don't have power over us. You're not God. But I have a question. Did God deliver them from the fire? Did God deliver them from the fire? Yes. Some people said yes, right? He came out of the fire. I could argue no though, right? God allowed him to go be put into the fire. He didn't save them from the fire. Right? So in one sense, they did not get delivered, right? They got put into the fire. But in another sense, they're delivered from the furnace, of course. So they were not spared going into the furnace. But then all of a sudden, what they find is that God has entered the furnace with them. God's with them. So then we continue. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him, and they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, listen to this decree of the king. We can see from the decree that the king still has not learned his lesson. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You can see what a rash human being King Nebuchadnezzar is. Notice the king doesn't say, you know, make a declaration that I'm not God, and the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is the true God, so we all need to worship him. That's not what happens. He says, okay, these three guys have something going on. If anybody messes with their God, I'll kill them. Right? He didn't learn. His, he's, a, he's the same person. He didn't change yet, even by seeing this. It's kind of true to his character, and you'll see in the next chapters when we talk in the next coming weeks, that it's kind of true to his character. So what's the story about? What's the story about? It's about one particular nation, Babylon. And Babylon in the Old Testament from the beginning and right on through the New Testament is sort of this personification of like the most evil, backward, um, God-hating empire ever. From the beginning with the Tower of Babel when they tried to reach to God, to this story, to even in the book of Revelation when St. John talks about Babylon as the beast, right? So like this idea of Babylon is sort of it's bigger than just, just one city. It's, it's just a personification of evil. It made me think of, like I, I put this picture up here because it made me think of like, if anybody of you guys used to watch Power Rangers or know anything about Power Rangers. So like the Power Rangers used to have like little robots or whatever. And when they got in trouble, they would jump in their robots and they would fight the, the bad guy or whatever. But then when they got in really bad trouble, they would combine all of their robots into one big robot. This one is called Megazord, by the way, if anybody wants to know. 
and they would like they'd all combine together into one big robot so that they can like conquer whatever uh, enemy there was and so Babylon is like all of the bad empires all combined into this, this one big thing okay that's what the, 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 the story of the Bible is trying to say when I talk about Babylon he's not just talking about one city he's talking about something like much bigger than that Babylon is sort of larger than life okay so yes it's about ancient kingdom but it becomes an image of like everything that's wrong with the human race and everything that's wrong with history and the story is sort of like an expose on the danger and the horror and the ridiculous consequences that happens when human kingdoms exalt themselves and when they elevate their national way of life to a place of the gods and they stamp it with their divine authority like the guy the hitler youth right saying he serves germany serves god so then it raises the question the chapter raises the next question what are god's people supposed to do what are God's people supposed to do? How are God's people supposed to respond in a situation like this? Because this is not just an ancient thing. This is part of the Bible's depiction of, you know, God's covenant people, the people of Israel. But God's people have always found themselves throughout history living in different kingdoms that exalt their national identity to divine proportions. And I think it's a unique question and still a problem for us living in the modern west for any of you who are over 19 years old you were born in the deadliest century in human history the, the, the 1900s the 20th century is the deadliest century in human history more humans were murdered at the hands of other humans and in a, on a greater proportion than ever in human history and how did that happen how did that happen? Right, there, there are probably lots of reasons and lots of things, but one of the main problems was national ideologies where a nation begins to exalt itself to the place of God. Nazi Germany is one case. There are many other sorts of different sort of regi regimes that sort of tried to vanish God completely. Like uh, many of the communist regimes that were in the 50s and 60s and and they tried to elevate themselves in the place of God and made sort of banish God by putting themselves in his place. That's sort of the legacy of the 1900s. And this is what the story in, in, in Daniel chapter 3 is about. This is not some idle issue. It's not just the issue of should they bow down or not. And this isn't an issue of just ancient people. It's a problem of the human condition even now. So what are God's people supposed to do? Look at the response of Shadrach, Bishak, and Abednego. It's so simple, but it's very powerful. How are God's people supposed to respond? First of all, it seems in the story that the book of Daniel is advocating resistance. Resist. Resist the temptation to equate your nation's values in civic religion and way of life with the one true God of heaven. Resist at all costs because this leads to compromise. But then resist how? What form should God's people's resistance take? And what's remarkable about the story is that it doesn't take a, the form of sort of like public protest. You know, they don't march down in chapter, in verse 1, it said they were, the statue was in the plain of Dura. They don't march down to the plain of Dura with like picket, you know, picketing and like saying, having signs or anything like that. They just, their resistance was sort of this peaceful non-participation in the national idolatry. What is the form that it originally takes? 
It's so peaceful, actually, they don't draw attention to themselves. How did this even become an issue? Someone told on them, right? They were just peacefully, I'm not going to do what these people say that they, they want me to do. I'm, I'm not going to do that. And they were minding their own business. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. They wouldn't have even been called out unless they had been sort of read out by these people. So there's something remarkable about their like peaceful non-participation. But their non-participation, by the way, does not mean withdrawal. Withdrawal. It doesn't mean they all moved out of Babylon into the plains of the desert and lived in the middle of nowhere and made an alternate community. What did these three people do for a living again? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, what did they do for a living? They worked for the government. They're helping the king, making the place a better place, making Babylon a better place. That was their job. So this is sort of this knife edge of how to be faithful in a place or in a land where it, the, the culture may be against my values. They dress like Babylonians, they talk like Babylonians, but they don't participate when it comes to those things. So that's the first thing. And it's actually what makes their resistance so difficult to deal with with Nebuchadnezzar. Because let's say they're supposed to, like, let's say they went the protesting route. Or maybe let's say they resisted with force. Maybe they went to the statue and they put bombs on their, on their waist and they say, if you make us worship the statue, we're going to ignite these bombs and I'm going to destroy the statue. Would that have made things easier or harder for Nebuchadnezzar? Easier, for sure. If they did that, Nebuchadnezzar would come and grab them and say, you are a danger to the community and we'll pull them out here and kill them. Right? But the power of the resistance of God's people in this story is actually their innocence and their peaceful demeanor. Their nonviolent resistance. That's the power because what they're saying is, you may have power to kill us. Nebuchadnezzar, you could, you could kill us. But what does that really mean? That doesn't make you God. Our God is the true God and He has power over life and death. And so if He chooses to keep us alive or if He chooses to let us die, either way, you're not God. So this is their innocence. The fact that they're actually not a threat to Nebuchadnezzar that makes the power of their witness more significant. This story right here, by the way, is one of the stories that helped early Christianity to develop sort of their political theology. A way of thinking about how Christians should behave and relate to uh, whatever nation or kingdom that they find themselves in. And it's very clear that the first thing is you have God's people, they're living in Babylon and they're being faithful to their God. And so for us, the, this story is about God's covenant people in Israel. But for us as our Lord Jesus Christ's covenant people, if we're truly being faithful, to Christ, that means first of all, resistance of national idolatries. But it doesn't mean a wholesale, complete withdrawal, withdrawal from the community. Or just a condemnation of everything about the place that we find ourselves in. So the followers of Christ find themselves in cultures and in places. But the fact that they happen to have or live in a certain place or a certain nation does not define them. Where do they get their identity? I am first and foremost a follower of Jesus. And so I identify myself by my relationship to God. And my mission is to seek God's kingdom and to love God and to love other people. That's what he told me. 
I'm going to seek the best for my community and for my nation. But I do so for a completely different reason than maybe everybody else is doing it. I'm not seeking the best for my nation because I think my nation is the best. It's because I believe that my nation exists under the rule and the authority of God and I'm called to contribute to it as an image-bearing human, as a follower of Christ. And actually, this is something that um, we discussed a little bit in a youth meeting last week uh, that one of the church fathers talks about St. Augustine. He writes a book called The City of God. And he develops this sort of idea that we have something that he kind of calls dual citizenship. You know, you have here, in, like, we have dual, people can have dual citizenship, right? Can be a citizen of one country and a citizen of another at the same time. You can have dual citizenship. St. Augustine says the same thing. There's dual citizenship. You have citizenship here on earth, but your ultimate true citizenship is where? Heaven, with God. So he's saying my first and foremost identity is as a member of God's kingdom. And a member of God's kingdom is multi-ethnic, you know, international, and it gives its allegiance to Christ. Christ, who is the king of the world. Whether or not Nebuchadnezzar or anybody else realizes it, he is still a servant of the world. Or a servant, excuse me, of the king of the world. And there are times where I might need to try to remind Nebuchadnezzar that he's not God. And the power of that resistance will be in its peaceful, non-violent manner where there's no even accusation of, of like revolt. But I'm just reminding Nebuchadnezzar, I'm reminding those in charge that they're not God and that they should do the right thing. And at the same time, this community resists by seeking the well-being of Babylon. It's a challenge. It doesn't fit in into any one category. We're called ourselves to dethrone our national identity and to exalt the one person who is the true image of God. If I'm a follower of our Lord Jesus Christ and I actually believe in Him, there is only one place where I can find a physical embodied image of God and it's not in a statue. There's only one place. This is what St. Paul says. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And how does the image of God, how does Christ, who represents heaven's rule and authority over earth, how does the Son go about ruling the world? God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things, to us in heaven and on earth, to all things in heaven and on earth. The Son of God enters the furnace. The image of God allows himself to be consumed in the fire, in the violence of human idolized kingdoms. He was there with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and he's there on the cross and he's allowing the consequences of the horror of national idolatries. Like he was killed on a Roman cross. And our Lord Jesus Christ is victorious over these idolatrous kingdoms and this world exactly through his love and his life and his resurrection conquering power. And if we are in his image, if we rule or to rule like him, 
then I need to make peace on earth, recognizing always my primary divine citizenship. You can see Daniel chapter 3 is not just a story about the three youth going into a fire and coming out of the fire, much deeper than that. I hope uh, this is beneficial for you guys to understand a little bit more about the book of Daniel, and glory be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Do we have any questions before? Perfect.